Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mike, check, Mike, check. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. You know what I'm Word up. That. Biblical, biblical, theology, theology, study, the person of God, attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet, so please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology, that phrase alone that gives some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough, uh-huh. just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical Nobody wants to be all cold and theological But being a theologian's not optional Cause when you talk about Christ You're saying something doctrinal Either it accurately portrays his majesty Or it's a travesty Or worse, blasphemy You can do a global search This mark is crucial to the health of a local church The Christian life is a difficult odyssey The faithful are a statistical anomaly The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically That's why we need that biblical theology Lord God, deliver us from apostasy The human heart is given to idolatry The situation is critical, we gotta see The importance of biblical theology What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key It's following the Bible storyline And the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine What he starts, he finishes with dedication A work of art, from Genesis to Revelation From God's creation To man's fall, to redemption, to consummation His designs and structure, each time will fluster What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed Romans 11.36 Biblical theology encompasses Who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes So clever we behold his endeavors unfold The greatest story ever told The Christian life is a difficult odyssey The faithful are a statistical anomaly The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically That's why we need that biblical theology Lord God, deliver us from apostasy The human heart is given to idolatry The situation is critical, we gotta See the importance of biblical theology. Yeah. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. You, Lord. He gave us the word providing us correction yeah. and the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our reflections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our death, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. Biblical theology. That is what this show is about, friends. Care about truth, you care about theology, you care about apologetics, you have tuned into the right show because your theology matters and with the blues, that's what we focus on. We deal with several uh, different issues, including uh, the cults, 
uh, atheism, uh, several different ph- philosophical uh, issues, a lot of philosophy of religion, and uh, we've had some, some top-notch uh, guests on our show. If you've not liked us on Facebook, uh, you can go to facebook.com slash theologymatters with the blues, facebook.com slash theologymatterswithblues. And uh, we've had a great summer so far. We've had uh, some very some very good shows and some, some very good guests. Uh, I'll try and get you guys, uh, you know, some of the leading thinkers uh, on these issues, some of them uh, well-known, some of them not as well-known, but uh, nonetheless, all of them uh, authorities in the field, and uh, they, know, uh, they know the topics well. So uh, thank you to Marcia Montenegro, who filled in for me last week we uh last week was a, it was a it was a busy week we had the debate that we did uh on tuesday uh between chris date and nathan taylor on uh whether or not hell is eternal conscious torment and had several downloads within the first i think two or three days uh there was uh, there was over two hundred downloads uh, i've not checked it uh for four or five days, so I'm not sure. Uh, but normally the, the debates tend to get, uh, you know, 1,000, 2,000. Uh, depends who the, who the, what, what the debate is and who's in it. Uh, but, you know, between 1,000 and 2,000 uh, downloads in a week, which, you know, I don't know if that's good or not, but uh, people are listening. Anyway, people, people think some of these issues are important, and we think they're important. And... Uh, yeah, so so Marcia uh, Montenegro, she is on the show once a month, and uh, she is she's an expert uh, on the occult. Runs Christian Answers for the New Age, and so we had her guest host, and uh, she did a marvelous job. She always uh, always has a lot of people who like to tune in and listen to her. So thank you again to Marcia. Um, upcoming next week, we have Rob Bowman uh, is going to be on the show, and we are going to be breaking down Bart Ehrman's new book. Uh, I think it's Putting Jesus in His Place or something, something to that effect. Sorry, I don't, I don't have the notes uh, right in front of me. Uh, but we're going to be looking at uh, Dr. Ehrman's new book, and uh, Rob Bowman has actually wrote a response. I believe it was on the Parchment and Pen uh, website, so we're going to have that to, to look through. And, uh, you know, Bar Ehrman is, he is he's dangerous. Uh, folks, he is not someone, um, he's not some guy that is just ignorant and just doesn't know. Uh, this guy is a, is a top-notch scholar. He studied under F.F. Bruce. He went to Wheaton. Uh, Bible College, he went to Moody Bible Institute, and sat under some very good thinkers um, for the Christian faith, uh, but at the end of the day, walked away. And uh, I think a lot of it had to do with, um, he. I, I just don't think he had, he had those issues thought very clearly. Some of them were textual issues that we'll get into next week. Uh, but I think he, he has said openly the reason he uh, left uh, Christianity and, and has abandoned uh, the belief in the existence of God was due to the problem of evil. 
So if you ever want to hear a good exchange uh, between airmen and uh, a theist, go to uh, Unbelievable Radio. And they actually uh, they did a debate with uh, the Christian philosopher Richard Swinburne and, uh, and Bart Ehrman on the problem of evil. And uh, it's pretty fascinating. Uh, uh, Dr. Swinburne is a, is a brilliant philosopher, and uh, I think he makes some excellent points with that. So you don't want to miss uh, you don't want to miss next week. We have uh, we have Rob Bowman. He will be joining us, uh, and we will be discussing Bart Ehrman's uh, new book. Let's see. Today, July twenty fourth. Uh, most people who are not from Utah or Idaho or Wyoming probably just look at this as another day. But uh, in Utah, July 24th is actually a very important, uh, very important day, and that is why we are going to be uh, doing our show uh, with Pastor Jason Wallace, uh, who is uh, with Orthodox uh, Presbyterian Church uh, in Utah, and he does a lot of outreach to Mormons and. Uh, we're going to be looking at Mormonism today. We're going to be we're going to be looking pretty deep into some of these issues on on the nature of God, um, etc. Why why do we do that? Why is July twenty fourth big? Well, July twenty fourth it actually commemorates the entry of Brigham Young and the first group of Mormon pioneers into the Salt Lake Valley on July twenty fourth, eighteen forty seven. That's why I say. Um, People who are not directly around Utah, living in that area, may not um, may not be aware of some of those uh, some of those issues. But that is that is why it is uh, it's a big deal out in uh, out in Utah, and so it's it's uh, it's pretty fascinating. So we're going to be looking at uh, some of the important differences uh, on the existence of God, as far as you know, who is God? Mormons Mormons say that they believe in Jesus and they believe that Jesus rose from the dead and some of these issues. Uh, so why would we not consider them brothers? We will be getting into that in about 20 minutes. So what I wanted to do, let me see if I can find this clip here, is I wanted to play a, a spot. Uh, it was a about a 10-minute debate between Michael Shermer and and um, yeah, Stephen Meyer from the Discovery Institute, and it's about a ten minute ten minute debate. There it is, uh, and they're kind of uh, this is on a show that Lee Strobel had hosted at one time called Faith Under Fire, which which I thought was a great show. Um, he would bring different people in who were experts in the field, and they would do debates uh, between you know rabbis and like Michael Brown. On the doctrine of the Trinity, they've done debates on um, the resurrection. I think it was between Michael Kona and uh, Shabir Ali, and they're not real long formal debates. It's probably uh, you know 10, 15 minute exchange like we're going to see here, and um, it's interesting. It's it's uh, it's kind of good to see what the talking points are. Of course, uh, you know if you want to get deeper, uh, yeah, you're going to have to spend more than 10 minutes to to get any type of meaningful answers to some of these issues brought up, uh, but nonetheless, they're interesting to listen to, and uh, 
you kind of see how apologetics works in action. So let's do this. Let's let's take uh, ten minutes and let's listen to uh, Michael Shermer, who I believe is still the editor of Skeptic Magazine and a, a well-known atheist, and Dr. Stephen Meyer, who is with the Discovery Institute. The theory of evolution is now being challenged by a new theory that says the universe looks designed because it was designed. The concept is called intelligent design because it claims there was an intelligence behind creation. A leading proponent is Dr. Stephen Meyer. He's director of the Center for Science and Culture at Seattle's Discovery Institute and co-author of Darwinism, Design, and Public Education. Disagreeing with him is Dr. Michael Shermer, publisher of Skeptic Magazine and author of The Science of Good and Evil. I want to start with you, Dr. Meyer, uh, because you're kind of making the affirmative claim here and say, you know, if you can just avoid the technical jargon as much as you can, give me three or four reasons why you believe there is an intelligent designer of the universe. You bet. Maybe I should start from the beginning. Uh, cosmologists and physicists uh, now tell us that the universe began from a finite uh, a finite time ago from an infinitesimally small spatial volume, effectively a zero point, in which there was neither matter, nor space, nor time, nor energy. And this points to a cause beyond the universe, uh, uh, the cause of, for, for the cause of the universe itself, something that, uh, a cause that would transcend matter, space, time, and energy. Secondly, physicists are now talking about the fine-tuning of the universe. They tell us that the initial arrangement of matter, the, uh, the laws and constants of physics, are all delicately balanced to allow uh, for life to exist. For example, if the force of gravitational attraction were a little bit stronger or weaker, if the, if the rate of the expansion of the universe were a little bigger or smaller, life would be impossible as we know it. One physicist, Sir Fred Hoyle, has said that uh, it looks as if a super intellect has uh, monkeyed with physics and chemistry to make life possible. And thirdly, and I think most importantly, in the realm of biology, people have over the last 50 years discovered an intricate realm of nanotechnology and information processing. There are little miniature circuits inside cells, so-called signal transduction circuits. There are uh, little miniature machines. My colleague Michael Behe at the Discovery Institute has made one of these famous, a little rotary engine inside the cell wall that looks like something, for all the world, like something that, uh, that Mazda designed. It has O-rings, it has bushings, it has a drive shaft, it has a little propeller that moves this little bacterium through, through liquid. It, this is, this is high-tech in low life. And I think finally and most importantly is the discovery that at the base of all life, all life depends on information, that it depends on a four-character digital code that is uh, resident in the DNA molecule. And people who are trying to explain the origin of life through various types of evolutionary theory have been utterly flummoxed by the question of the origin of this, these genetic assembly instructions. Uh, Michael, you're the editor of Skeptic Magazine. I don't expect you to be anything less than skeptical about that. Well, how do you analyze the evidence as Dr. Meyer presented it? Well, it's important to note that um, when we're talking about those kinds of questions, regardless of whether uh, the answers I'm about to give are right or not, and they, they may change because science is constantly changing, uh, the default answer is not that therefore there must be a designer or a god. Uh, a default answer that's perfectly acceptable in science is we don't know. Now, we do know actually quite a bit about uh, the four categories that Stephen just discussed. For example, um, the fact that 
the universe had an origin and therefore there must have been a creator uh, just begs the question of, well, who created the creator or the intelligent designer? The fact that something has to have a creation just, uh, just leads to the next question of, well, then who created that entity and who created that entity? And the theological answer is, well, God is that which does not need to be created. Well, why can't the universe be that which does not need to be created? Okay, let's be, pause there. Very, Michael, that's that's very, good point. Yeah. very good point, Stephen. Uh, well, I, what I would say to that is that, that uh, philosophically, something has to be the thing from which everything else comes. Something has to be what philosophers call the, the prime reality. And Why does that have to be uh, God? Well, mean, maybe the, who created God? That's the, what I the, want to know. The Big Bang Theory and general relativity suggest that matter is a crummy candidate to be the thing from which everything else comes because if you go back far enough, you, you, you end up in a, with a place in which you have no matter. It no may space, not be no matter. Time, no it may energy. just be pure energy. It could be quantum foam fluctuation. It could be a black hole in another universe. It could be a number of things. We're not well, sure what, what, yet. What, what physicists are saying now is that the, the, the primary thing at the very beginning is actually an information wave. And again, we're back to the same argument I was making in biology, that information in our experience comes from mind. And so from what we know about... The, the, the causes of the origin of information, we're looking at evidence of design not only in life, but right back to the beginning of the universe. Okay, but where did the information come from, in your opinion, in the first place? I, I think it came from an intelligent creator that transcends matter, and, space, time, and energy. And who created that intelligent I creator? Think, I think that is the prime reality. Okay, Michael, yeah. beyond this issue of the beginning of the universe, yeah, okay. and, and it seems to me he's saying whatever begins to exist has a cause, the universe virtually every scientist admits began to exist, therefore must have a cause. Yeah, yeah but you're just talking about argument. ultimate causes. I understand right. that, but the, the question then becomes, you know... Yeah, let's talk about design and biology. And, and we're, all right, okay, let's that. move on so to let's go to, the, let's go to the next point. Um, it looks designed. It is designed. That's why it looks designed. It is designed. We're not d debating whether it's designed or not. There is design. You'd be, have to be barking mad to not think that the life is not, is not designed. It is designed, but it's designed from the bottom up by a natural process of evolution. And that's why it looks tinkered and not very well designed and sort of patched worked and put together from previous uh, organisms and structures and functions and so on. It doesn't look to me very well intelligent design. Good point, Stephen. How do you respond to those? Well, I, I think it's exquisitely designed, especially when you look at, at what's going on at the molecular level and the information processing system that is the basis of all living systems. He's made the argument, for example, that the eye is not, is not well designed because uh, uh, the wiring appears inverted to some, to some uh, uh, physiologist. But, but others dispute that and say that the vertebrate eye is an exquisitely designed system that represents uh, uh, what engineers call constrained optimization, where many factors have been optimized to uh, achieve the best overall functionality. So this vertebrate eye that, that uh, evolutionists say is not uh, well designed that looks tinkered with is actually the same eye that eagles use to achieve this incredible visual acuity that they have. Okay, we're going to come back in just a moment. We're going to hear more about Darwin versus design. discussing evolution versus intelligent design with Dr. Stephen Meyer and Dr. Michael Shermer. Uh, Stephen, the intelligent design movement has been criticized by some by saying, hey, it's just a bunch of Christians trying to get their theological viewpoint propagated. Uh, is that a fair criticism? Well, it, it would be fair if it were also fair to say that Darwinism has been undermined in its credibility by the fact that many or most Darwinists are agnostics or atheists. I mean, Michael Shermer and Eugenie Scott and Richard Dawkins have all signed the, uh, the Third Humanist Manifesto, which is a call for an aggressive atheistic world order. 
And uh, two can play that motive-mongering game, but the problem with it is that it doesn't settle anything. You have to evaluate arguments by the quality of the evidence and the reasoning that are used to support them. And there and has been Michael, Michael Shermer wants to a, say nice that, that belief in intelligent design is a weird belief that's used to justify um, a prior religious commitment. We think it's a perfectly sensible belief, whatever your religious commitment. If you see evidence of, uh, of software or something that functions like software, it's perfectly reasonable to infer that there was a programmer. Of course, but when almost every single member I know of of your movement is an evangelical Christian, you hardly have any Jews or Baptists or Buddhists or anything like that, that makes oh, that's me simple. suspect. That, 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 that just makes me false. suspect of something. It would be like if every single member of a group were Democrat or Republican, and I would think, okay, maybe they're right, but that makes me skeptical of something else going on here. Stephen, I want to ask you: Is it possible to believe in Darwinian evolution and be a Christian? Um, yeah, it's certainly possible as a matter, as a, as a personal matter, but I think it's logically contradictory. The problem is, it really depends on what you mean by evolution. If by evolution you mean simply that things change, yeah, things change, and, uh, um, and, and you can believe that, be a Christian, a theist, a Jew, anything you like, and be logically consistent. What Darwinism says, though, is things change as a result of a purely undirected natural process. I don't see why it, it couldn't be perfectly reasonable for a believer to think that it or God or whoever used the natural forces to create life as it is. That's how God works. What's wrong with that? Well, that's right. If he uses natural forces, directs them in some way, that's a form of de design. That's not what Darwinism says. Darwinism says things look designed, but they're not really because an undirected process produced the appearance of design. But, but I mean the actual... A designer can't direct an undirected process. Well, a designer could use natural selection. A designer could do anything he wants, particularly but then it's if it's directed process. It's well, a directed well, process. Well, I mean, first of all, then why are you an atheist, Michael, and second? Okay, I'm gonna I want to stop it right there because we only got uh, a few minutes before our, our guest calls in, and I just I wanted to tackle tackle just a, a couple of points. You know, so you're they're doing this. You know, they obviously are not going to be able to sit and hit uh, every single point because they only have a you know a few minutes. Uh, let's see, there we go. So let, let's 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 look at this. Um, one of the things I you know I'll bring up real quick at the end there. Um, I do think part of the part of the problem is, and this was this was something that happened uh, earlier this week. Uh, if you've been on the uh, the internet, you've seen Ken Ham had made some some statements about aliens and uh, uh, Huffington Post allegedly says he wanted to defend the NASA program and aliens are going to hell. I don't I don't know if he said all that. Um, as a young Earth creationist myself. Uh, I don't particularly want Ken Ham as my spokesperson. Uh, however, uh, I know the Huffington Post uh, is certainly not a reliable source as far as uh, being unbiased and uh, objective. Uh, they 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 want to make Christians look stupid. That's what I see. Uh, but let's let's look at some of these issues. Um, you know, Sherman asks, uh, who created God? And, of course, this is kind of the, the every school kid's question, um, but it's not, it's not a thoughtful question because it, it, it assumes God is created, and that's the whole point. God is the first mover. He's pure actuality. He's the, he is uh, the first cause. So to ask who created God is like saying, what's the first cause of the first cause? It's incoherent. Uh, but secondly, it's it's irrelevant to the ID argument. 
right? Intelligent design argument is what they're they're not they're not arguing for a particular deity, whether whether someone wants to believe in pantheism, whether someone wants to believe in um, you know whatever. Uh, the issue is uh, let's see. The, the the issue is are things designed? Could can naturalism alone account for the things that we that we see? That's that's the real question. That's what's being challenged on here. So uh, when you know you hear this, uh, well, who designed the designer? Well, I don't have to know that to know that something's designed. If I'm walking. In, you know, in a forest, and come across a rock, and come across an arrowhead. I don't rule out that the arrowhead was intelligently designed. Because, well, who created the the guy that created the arrowhead? Well, that's an interesting question, but it's the second question. It has nothing to do with the, the question that I'm asking. So I think he, he totally misses it there. Um, you see again this uh, the the he claims that we're arguing from ignorance. You know, we 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 don't know, therefore God did it. Folks, that is such a misinformed argument. If I say, I don't know why lightning happens, therefore Zeus does it, granted, that's the God of the gaps. But these arguments from ID are not that. These arguments are not arguments from ignorance. It's, it's argument from what we do know. We do know that the basic living cell, or the smallest living cell, has over, um, I think it's like four to five, four or five volumes of the Encyclopedia Britannica full of information. And that comes from uh, Richard Dawkins and his book, The Blind Watchmaker. Right? So we're not arguing based on what we don't know. We're arguing based on what we do know. What we do know. Uh, and what we do know is life comes from life. Uh, the basic living cell to even get life, there's a minimum uh, set of information of genes that have to be there to even have a cell that's going to function, and it requires intelligence. That's why the, or the issue of the origin of life has, has not been answered by the atheists. Uh, secondly, um, I'm trying to think what else he was, he was going down there. He was going down through kind of his, his typical list of arguments against uh, uh, Christianity. Um, the fact that uh, the majority of the people in ID are evangelical Christians well, what what is the fact that uh, there are evangelical Christians? What does that have to do with uh, with the evidence for ID? Right, that is just a, a genetic fallacy. That is dismissing uh, a claim or an argument based on the origin of where it came from. Right, it doesn't matter who says the the argument. The question is, is it true? Are the premises true? Does the conclusion hold? Right, so that's that's kind of where it's at. So, going after uh, going after uh, intelligent design and dismissing it because they're Christians who are giving the arguments is just ridiculous. It's just not a good way to argue, not a good way to think at all. Uh, and uh, quickly here, I'll just take another minute. We've got our our guest on on the other line, and then we'll take a break and come back and and talk about Mormonism. But quickly, I just want to I want to deal with this issue real quick of evolution. Again, folks, I'm a young earth creationist. I don't hold to evolution at all. I think it's bad. I know it's bad theology, but I also think it's bad science. Uh, but this idea that somehow biological evolution is true, that that would, that would disprove the existence of God, is fallacious, folks. It wouldn't. It would not. 
you have to deal with the origin of the universe. How does the order? How does the universe come into existence? Okay, if you use the secular uh, dating methods and their kind of their standard, they say the universe comes into existence 13.8 billion years ago. First life doesn't evolve to until 3.8 billion years ago, right? So the, the the question is, what brings the universe into existence? Right, uh, you have Lawrence Krauss and you have others who have written these books, and Dr. Craig and Krauss debated on this, and I think Craig demonstrated that uh, Dr. Krauss doesn't know what he's talking about. He's, he's equivocating on the term nothing. Uh, he's using it as a scientist with Craig and those who use it in, for example, the Kalam cosmological argument. It's a philosophical argument, and, and it's the using the word nothing as a non-being. So you have the origin of the universe. You have the fine-tuning of the universe. Even for life to be able to be permitted here on, this, on, on Earth, you have to have certain conditions. And uh, as Dr. Craig brought this out in his debate against uh, Frank Zendler, that uh, even if evolution was true, the fine-tuning of the universe um, is so improbable and so unlikely that for life to evolve would actually be an argument for the existence of God. Now, again, I agree, it would cause theological issues, it would raise theological questions. I'm not advocating evolution. All I'm saying is this idea that evolution would somehow disprove the existence of God is ridiculous. Because biological evolution is four or five steps down the road. Uh, you first have to deal with origin of life, origin of the universe, fine-tuning of the universe, objective morality. These type of issues that... Um, Evolution just has nothing to do with. So, uh, with that being said, hope you guys enjoyed that little discussion there between Stephen Meyer and uh, Michael um, Stephen Meyer and Michael Shermer. And with that being said, let's take a quick um, two-minute break, and we'll be back with our guest, Pastor Jason Wallace, and we will be looking at the issue of Mormonism. Stay with us. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. One minute apologist. If you had one minute Apologia. to be able to unpack. For the audience, we interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. Dr. Brown, is Jesus Christ the Messiah of Isaiah 53? Oh, absolutely. Isaiah 53 is, is a key, perhaps the key, Messianic prophecy in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, if you try to interpret it with reference to Israel or the righteous remnant within Israel, it breaks down. But when you recognize that beginning in 52.13 through 53.12, it's, it first speaks of the Messiah's great exaltation, but then it says that, that he'll suffer and be terribly disfigured. And as the text goes on, what we learn is that his own people, Israel, didn't recognize him. He was suffering for their sins, and yet they thought he was suffering for his own sins. And then they come to the revelation, it was our sins that he bore. It was our, our guilt that he was carrying, and by his wounds were healed. So, so it paints the whole picture of the Messiah's exaltation, but only following his suffering, his rejection by his own people, and yet ultimately their eyes opened to receive him as the Messiah of Israel and thus the Savior of the world. Here's a Renewing Your Mind Minute with Dr. R.C. Sproul. The church, ultimately, in which I am called to be a member, is what we call the invisible church, whose members include every person who has ever been a believer in Christ. Martin Luther is a member of my congregation. St. Augustine is a member of my church. 
And when we come and worship together as a community on Sunday morning, we're not just having fellowship with each other, but we have a mystical union with Christ, and Christ has the mystical union with all of his people. So by virtue of our communion with Christ, we also are in communion with all of the saints, with all of the people of God. It transcends space. It transcends time. For today's special offer, visit renewingyourmind.org. All right, folks, and we are back and uh, have our guest on the line, Pastor Jason Wallace. And uh, let me let me introduce Pastor Wallace here before we we uh, bring him right into the show. Uh, pastor Jason Wallace is uh, the pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in Salt Lake City and host of the Ancient Paths on KTMV TV 20. Uh, Pastor Wallace has participated in and moderated numerous debates on the topic of Mormonism, and uh, he also does outreach ministry uh, to the LDS community in Utah. Pastor Wallace, are you there? I'm here. Oh, it's great to great to finally get to talk to you. Yeah, same here. It's a great privilege to be with you. Yes, I've enjoyed your. Uh, your television show for for quite some time. I've learned so much uh, so much watching that. Uh, tell, tell us a little bit about your your TV show. Well, basically, uh, James White used to come to town uh, twice a year for general conference, and we uh, persuaded him to do some debates for us here, and I moderated those. And uh, then it got to be more difficult because the street preachers started coming to town and started protesting James uh, during conference. Uh, it, oh. it turned into a circus down there. And so uh, also uh, Dan Peterson put out the word that no one should participate in our debates because we were an anti-Mormon organization and these were, were anti-Mormon events. So James hasn't been coming regularly anymore, and we decided to keep doing the debates, and uh, so I started doing them because I'm not a debater, but I realized neither are they, so I did a number <laughs> of debates, uh, and that opened the door to an opportunity to start doing the weekly television program. Uh, there were some other programs that were being done that you know were coming from uh, very different perspectives than a Reformed one, and... I've got a face for radio, but uh, and I'm not exactly uh, great at live TV, but in the Lord's sense of humor, the door opened. And so um, six and a half years ago, we started doing that, and uh, we are live from 8 to 9 Wednesday nights and take callers. And uh, we basically reach by either over-the-air cable or uh, direct TV from – southern part of Idaho, over to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, uh, Rock Springs, Wyoming, most of the state of Utah, um, um, over into the eastern parts of Nevada, and uh, a little bit beyond that. So we've got about guys, 2 million... Oh, go ahead. we got about 2 million folks who can watch us live. Wow. And you, you guys have a, a YouTube channel as well, right? That's... that's where I think I watched probably most of the videos. 
Yeah, Ancient Paths TV is the is the YouTube channel, and we've also got uh, a website, uh, ancientpaths.tv. Yeah, I really, really recommend uh, people watch it. And uh, if it's okay with you, Pastor Wallace, I will uh, put a link up to that on our Facebook page. And uh, you know, we want uh, want people to have access to uh, to things that are good, solid uh, theology. And sometimes people don't know about uh, some of these things, so we'll we'll get that out there and, and let people aware of that. So, um, appreciate yeah. it. We've, we've 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 had probably the best set of interviews I know on Mormonism. We've had both critics of Mormonism like Sander Tanner and a number of others uh, in specific areas you know, such as the Mountain Meadows Massacre or uh, various issues within Mormonism, but also we've had uh, a number of defenders of Mormonism. We've had Alma Allred on over a dozen times. He's a, an instructor at the LDS Institute at the University of Utah. Uh, we've had Martin Tanner on, who I've debated. We've had Van Hale on. And, you know, then we do some fun stuff. We've had the president of the Atheist of Utah on a couple of times. We've had the co-directors of the gay LDS group that was protesting the LDS church over Proposition 8. Uh, we've had a representative from PETA. Um, uh, I love we, it. We, yeah. uh, Latin Mass Roman Catholic, um, uh, mem- member of a, a an apostle in a splinter LDS polygamous group. So wow. we try to have some fun. You guys, yeah, you guys, you, you get in there and you mix it up. I I really really like that. Uh, those ones with the with the Roman Catholics and Mormons is that on. Is that on the uh, on the website where people can look those up? Or? Yeah, yeah, it should all be there. Uh, we right. we're still trying to update. Uh, we 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 juggle about twice as much stuff as we should, but so uh, some of it's a little bit behind. But yeah, almost, the vast majority of our episodes are up on YouTube. Take a minute, and, and if you would, just kind of tell us how how uh, how the Lord saved you and. Uh, Maybe some of the some of the things you got going on at your church. Sure. Um, yeah, the Lord had a sense of humor preparing me for Utah. I grew up in Statesboro, Georgia, uh, right in the middle of the Bible Belt there, and was not really brought up in a church to speak of until I was about fourteen. I had a Pentecostal grandmother. Uh, went to Seventh-day Adventist church schools for three years because that was one of the only private school options around and got exposed to Roman Catholicism and the occult. Got invited to a Southern Baptist church when I was 14, walked to Nile, prayed prayer, thought I was going to be serious about Jesus. But when I was 23, I went out with a girl that tried to recruit me into the Way International, and she was basically quoting chapter and verse, rattling off why Jesus isn't God. And I could fake my way through Sunday school class easily enough, but I got very embarrassed because I realized I didn't know this, I didn't know the Bible. You know, I picked at it in uh, my whole life, but I had no real understanding of it. Thought I did, and. 
started actually studying it and realized I didn't know God either. You know, I I had mouthed the words of being a sinner and, you know, Jesus is Savior sinners, but the Lord drove home to me that I was really the worst sinner I'd ever met. And uh, he took me to my knees but then showed me Christ. And wow. through some through some bizarre providences soon led me to the Independent Presbyterian Church in Savannah and was under the ministry of Terry Johnson there for for over 10 years. Wow. And turned my world upside down. <laughs> In a good way. Oh, yeah, definitely. I, I was a number cruncher by profession. I was extremely socially awkward. But soon after, I visited Utah on a business trip and went through the temple uh, square tours and met Sandra Tanner and started reading these things. And you know, I had an interest in sharing the gospel with these people who were twisting the scriptures and realized that to a great extent they were like me. They were religious, but they weren't, they weren't Christians. They didn't know who God was. They were mouthing the words, but without much of a clue. And so I started praying for these folks, and right after I came back from the trip, they had moved the Mormon missionaries in two doors down from me. And the Lord just kept putting Mormons in my path. I kept praying for them that God would send somebody out there and, you know, someone who actually could speak without hemming and hawing and stuttering. And I had a sense of humor and kept opening doors for ministry, pushing me through them, and ended up going to seminary a few years later with the hope of being able to help somehow. And not only became a pastor, but now... The guy who was white knuckled at the lectern is now doing live TV. <laughs> wow, that is amazing! So you started uh, Christ Presbyterian Church. Did you start that, or did you did you take yeah, that over? Yeah, we, from... we we started from from scratch. Uh, I was uh, originally supposed to come out with the PCA, but my presbytery ran in, into some political problems. Uh, there were some folks who didn't want to see weird things like expository preaching and singing hymns and psalms and stuff like that out here. And so my presbytery ended up sending me over to the OPC, which was the best thing they could have done for me, and actually stayed on board financially and helped finance the church plan here. Um, I was going to Provo to try to stay out of the politics. The... Protestant population here is a little over 4% in Salt Lake County. It's uh, it's about one half of 1% down in Utah County, which is where Provo is. But um, that wasn't wow. enough to stay out of the politics. So we came to Salt Lake. We tried to pick up the pieces with some folks uh, that I tried to start a PCA church. Some were interested, some weren't. Um, but pretty much started from scratch and have plugged along since and the Lord's blessed over the last 16 years we have a congregation here we bought a building an old Mormon ward uh, that we've been fixing up and we have a sister congregation up in Ogden now uh, Berean Presbyterian oh wow that's wonderful that's uh, I was just thinking and, and correct me if I'm wrong but it seems like <laughs> in a way you have a double strike against you one you're in a in a population where it's overwhelmingly 
uh, Mormon, and then secondly, uh, even the population of Christians there, uh, a lot of Christians that I run into, and I'm a Reformed Baptist, a lot of Christians I run into really do not like Reformed theology too much. Uh, have you have you had that encounter out there, or is, oh, is most like definitely. Um, I, I've been told we're worse than the Mormons. You have to understand a whole lot of what passes for evangelical Christianity here is telling people you don't need a church, all you need is Jesus. Right. And basically play off people's frustration with the manipulation uh of the Mormon church. Right. And you know, it's a lot of California Christianity with cheap grace, you know, happy clappy, feel good, um you know, but let's let's bash everyone else as a Pharisee. Right. Uh, if, they, if they if they are any more strict in any area than we are, uh, you know, the Lord's blessed us with good relations with a number of folks, but there there's just a a great hostility here among even even people that you wouldn't expect. Uh, a number of Baptists, a number of uh, others. There's just a hostility to anything resembling um, a traditional church, where you actually have discipline. You know, Matthew 18. You know, the, uh, you know, if you tell people, you know, we encourage you to make reasonable efforts to be with the Lord's people on the Lord's day. Um, you know, they they jump up and down and point their finger at you and say, Pharisee, Pharisee. Wow. So it, it, it's a it's a strange place to to minister in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's uh, you know I, I grew up in Utah, but uh, when when uh, I think I was what 23, uh, my parents had moved to uh, to Oregon, and uh, I went went with them there and stayed up there for a while. And it was actually up in Oregon that uh, that the Lord saved me. And then from Oregon, I'm I'm here now in South Carolina. And, haven't uh, I've only been back once, but we actually we plan on going out again in December. Uh, but man, I just would relish those opportunities to be able to uh, to 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 talk with uh, so many of of the people out there. And uh, I'm sure it's uh, got to be a difficult job as a pastor and kind of in that in that climate that you're in. One uh, again, you're not uh, your majority. Non-Christian, and then secondly, uh, the state of Christianity today, the majority seem to be just very hostile, uh, as you say, towards uh, Reformed theology. Of course, you know, amongst younger people, that's kind of changing, and I think people are getting more uh, interested in in Reformed theology, uh, which is a good thing. Though, um, it's like you say, you know, this kind of anti-church, anti uh, creed, anti-doctrine, it, it just drives me crazy. I mean, it's just, uh, I just think it's not a good thing. You know, I think churches need to be doing the creeds, they need to be, um, you know, the catechisms, the, the reformed confessions. I just think they're so important. Honestly, I think that only the reformed faith really answers Mormonism on its most fundamental grounds. I I found that I can disarm a whole lot of Mormons 
uh, you know, a lot, a lot of evangelicals basically are looking for the malcontents. Mm-hmm. And fighting people who are going through divorce, they're frustrated with you know, the way they're being treated or something like that. And, you know, there's a lot of dropouts out there. And there there are people like that that sometimes the Lord reaches. But uh, But one of the dirty secrets here is that a lot of the folks that come out go back. And so... You know, we we try to deal directly with Mormonism head on, and uh, the you know I tell Mormons things that infuriate a lot of folks because I say if I was Mormon, honestly, I'd be hard pressed to take a lot of my critics seriously because in contrast with many of your critics, not all, but many of your critics, you have a visible church. When a lot of folks see any kind of visible church as Phariseeism, right? I mean, some of their most vocal critics just revile the church publicly. Yes. And I say, you know, in contrast with a lot of your critics, you have a call to holiness. You know, it's mm-hmm. touch not, taste not, handle not. Uh, it's fair. You know, it's it's a perverted view of holiness, but. A lot of your critics seem to pride themselves on seeing how worldly they can be and still be Christians. Um, mm. You you have accountability. You know you you have elders. It's a twisted form of eldership, but you know there, there's actually some view of, of discipline and, and accountability. You have um, you think that uh, honoring God one day in seven is is a, is, is supposed to be a delight. Whereas, you know, a lot of your critics will jump up and down and say that's legalism. Uh, honoring God with a tenth of your increase. You know, if I, if I was Mormon and had a very superficial view of Scripture, I'd look at a lot of the critics saying, you know, um, I have a relationship and I, you know, and um, don't bother me about actually living anything. You know, don't talk to me about a changed heart. Don't talk to me about actually doing what Jesus says to do. Uh, I've got a relationship. Uh, and I, I'd be sticking with Mormonism. I say, but just because they're wrong on those things doesn't mean that you're right on everything else. Your God's mm-hmm. a fiction. And, and your God your God isn't a God at all. Right. That's right. Um, and that's, I think, I think you're right. That's one of the issues, too, is, and, and again, Correct me if I'm wrong. You're a lot smarter than I am. That's why. That's why I have you on the show. I, I pity you if that's the case, man. <laughs> One of the things that drives me absolutely crazy is the uh, this uh, in the Protestant Church, and uh, not in. When I say the Protestant Church, and I don't say this to be arrogant, but uh, I'm not really. I'm not speaking a lot. This doesn't. I don't see this a lot within the good Reformed. Uh, churches that hold to confessions, creeds, etc. I'm not saying that, that that's across the board. You know, you're going to have uh, instances of where this happens, but I think for the most part, it, it just doesn't happen. Uh, but pastors who do not want to teach theology to the church, and I've even had pastors that would apologize for saying uh, theological terminology. So, for example, I remember one one day the pastor had mentioned uh, the word justification. And as soon as he mentioned it, he went into a five-minute apology for even using theological terms from the pulpit. And I just see this idea of dumbing down the church. I know Dr. Sproul says 
uh, you know, we live in a day and age that is the most anti-intellectual in probably ever. And uh, this idea that, uh, you know, doctrine's not important, just love Jesus, it's a, it's a relationship, it's not a religion. I think when you do that, when, you, when that's the emphasis, that's why you have other so-called pastors that will attack the doctrine of the Trinity, that will attack justification by faith alone, uh, because they themselves have no idea what, uh, what is the clear orthodox teachings uh, of Christianity. Yeah, I, I dealt with this last night on the show. I'm not sure when it's going to be up. Uh should be, hopefully, up, if not now and within a couple of days. I tried to make the point that, you know, you hear the term Pharisee thrown around. The The problem with the Pharisees was not uh, really their formality. It wasn't strictly tithing or Sabbath any more than it was their prayers or their giving or their fasting. Um there was nothing inherently wrong in any of those things that they had perverted them. You know, the fundamental two problems were that they had allowed the traditions of men to subvert the word of God, and they were hypocrites. Their their religion was a show for themselves and others to distract themselves from the fact that they were rebels against God. You know, there, it was it's the religion of Cain. And the point I tried to make is, you know, so many of the people who hurl the the word around are themselves Pharisees uh, because uh, it's cheap grace. Yeah. And you you know you read First John two to them. Uh, you read Jesus saying, "Not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he does the will of my Father." Uh, you know it's. Um, you know, he says to them, "Depart! I never knew you, you workers of iniquity." There's no, there's no sense of the new birth anymore. There's no sense that uh, the Holy Spirit, who gives us faith, gives us repentance as well. Right. Not that repentance is part of faith, but it always accompanies faith. And you know, the, the Spirit who frees us. Uh, from the from the guilt of sin through imputing the, the blood of Christ frees us from the power of sin through sanctification. Amen. And that's a message. The funny thing is, um, I get more hate mail from professing evangelicals than I do Mormons. Wow. Um, I sometimes I, I I tell Mormons, your God is pitifully pitifully small. If he was even real. <laughs> Your God isn't a God. Your God is is a Superman. He's an exalted man. You know, he's Kyle. He's he's uh, he's faster than a speeding bullet, mightier than a locomotive. He can jump over tall buildings, but he ain't a God. Right. As we say about Georgia. <laughs> uh, you know, I said, you know, when Solomon dedicated the temple in Jerusalem, he said, the heavens of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this temple that I've built? Uh, you know, all of creation can't contain God. But That's right. the Mormon God, you can stack him and a whole bunch of others up like cordwood inside the, the temple of Solomon. Yes. Um, you know, we're using the same term for radically, radically different concepts. And my, my great frustration is that you have Ravi Zacharias come to town and talk about the benefits of theism, and the Mormons all just smile and nod along. And mm. he never 
never defines who, who you know, never, never tries to articulate who this God really is. Right. Um, and we have Richard Mao, who was president of Fuller Seminary at the time, who comes along t- with Ravi Zacharias 10 years ago and apologizes to the Mormons for all the lies evangelicals have been telling about them. Wow. And he got asked afterwards, uh, excuse us, Dr. Mal, what, what lies? And he says, well, right. I've been assured by scholars at BYU that Mormons no longer believe that they are going to attain to godhood. It's like, uh, funny thing is, Dr. Mal, their teaching manuals stated explicitly. Wow. Uh, but Mal goes back to Grand Rapids. You know, he used to be at Calvin uh or Calvin College years ago, and right. he gets Erdman's, you know, who publishes Calvin. Uh, he gets Erdman's to publish a defense of Mormonism written by a BYU professor. And he states wow. in the afterward, I believe any open-minded Christian, this is loose paraphrase here, I believe any open-minded Christian will conclude that Bob Millett is trusting in the Jesus of the Bible for his salvation. That's certainly my sense. Wow. And he refuses to listen to anything to the contrary wow well this would probably be a good place to uh get into some of the some of the differences because that i think is I, that right there that that type of thinking is so satanic so toxic so devilish um that is that is just uh, that is so evil um it is spiritual cyanide is what uh, Richard Mell is uh, is doing. So I've talked to friends before that they'll say, listen, Devin, uh, Mormons, they love Jesus. Jesus is God. They believe Jesus died on the cross. Uh, they believe that the Bible is the word of God. So why why, aren't, why don't we consider them our brothers and sisters? So maybe, uh, if you don't mind, Pastor Wallace, we can just kind of systematically look at some of these issues and you can kind of contrast uh, the Mormon view with, with the biblical view. And uh, I mean, okay. I'll let you you start where you want. Maybe I don't know if you want to start with the doctrine of God. And well, whatever. I tell you what. Like. Let me let me give you a sense of some of the conversation that you'll find out there. Okay. Uh, Mark Cares is a Wisconsin Synod Lutheran pastor who wrote a book back in the mid '90s uh, called "Speaking the Truth in Love to Mormons," and it got a lot of traction with folks who were trying to reach Mormons uh, because it basically presented a a, a law gospel uh, kind of critique. And it, it's a useful book. But coming from a reform perspective, um, the, the, it's important to understand the, one of the major differences between Lutherans and Reformed, for Luther and for the Lutherans to this day, the fundamental problem with, with Rome was works righteousness. And there's a temptation for evangelicals to look at Mormonism and see the fundamental problem is works righteousness. The Reformed understood that works righteousness was the symptom of a deeper problem, which was idolatry. Works righteousness right. makes perfect sense if God's an exalted man. And so the problem with Mormonism is 
God's not that holy. He's an exalted man. He's one among many gods. And wow. he was a sinner like ourselves. But through obedience to law, he, he proved his worthiness for celestial exaltation. Uh, so God's not that holy. Sin's not that bad. The the fall was uh, has been called a triumph and one of the greatest blessings ever given to man, according to LDS apostles. Uh, they, they have referred to it as a fall upward uh, because it established free agency so that we could prove our worthiness to become God's. So God's not that holy. Fall upward. That's, <laughs> that seems logically Sorry. incoherent. I was going to say falling upward. That's kind of a logically incoherent. Well, uh, the same language is being used by a PCA guy in Metro New York Presbytery uh, saying that Adam uh, evolved from an ape and he fell upward to moral responsibility. It makes wow. me, you know, I hear reports like that. It makes me want to pull out what little bit of hair I got left. <laughs> but, yeah, that's kind um, of denying the Westminster Confession, isn't it? Well, who reads that anymore? <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm a curmudgeon. But anyway, the, the problem with Mormonism is God's not that holy. Sin's not that bad. So man's not that lost. He has his free agency. So grace makes no sense. And you try to talk grace to these folks, and all they understand is, is cheap grace. You have to go back and show them who God really is. This is the God who drowned the whole world, except for Noah and those on the ark. This is the God that when Nadab and Abihu offered worship, that wasn't what he prescribed. The fire of the Lord went out and consumed them. This is the God that when Uzzah touches the ark, God kills him. He kills Ananias and Sapphira. He kills people all over the place and sends them to hell. Um, and one of, one of the things that has made me very unpopular in some circles, and the funny thing is Mormons actually come up to me regularly telling me, I'm a devout Mormon, but I love your show. <laughs> but evangelicals, man, um, you know, you, you talk about the judgment of God. Uh, you point out that it's New Testament as well as Old, and you talk about uh, Revelation 6, Revelation 14. Uh, you know, hell is not the absence of God, but they're tormented in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. Right. Um, and you show them that God is infinitely holy. That sin is treason. You know, when God creates all things, he declares everything very good. And the fall is man rejecting the revelation of God, asserting his own autonomy, declaring that things are not very good, that God is either unwilling or incompetent to provide what's good. And he shakes his fist at God, and he, and he, and he seeks to exalt himself. And the Mormons see that as a wonderful thing. And um, you show them, no, this is how God views sin. 
that man is a slave to sin, that man deserves nothing but judgment. But the good news is that Christ came to save the ungodly. Amen. Uh, the Mormons... The Mormons love to think that we're all basically good people. And the sad reality is, you know, beneath the Disneyland facade, there there is uh, you know, we have we have good neighbors. It's, you know, it's not it's not like everything is rotten here, but uh we live in a decent neighborhood, but we have a registered sex offender. On, next door to us on one side, we have a registered sex offender uh, out the back door uh, behind us, and the son-in-law of the people on the other next door neighbor, uh, he's at the state prison for molesting his children. If I'm wow. dealing with a woman, if I'm dealing with a woman who's from Utah, I assume she's been molested. Wow. If I'm dealing with a man, I, I assume that there's probably about a 30 to 40 percent chance. Like Mormonism historically, you know, it's it's gotten mellowed out a little bit, but historically it's a fertility cult. Wow. And I've never seen, I, I've never pastored anywhere else, but I've I've never heard of uh, just such rampant abuse, especially of children. See. In Mormonism, we're all spirit brothers and sisters. And so right. your wife is your spirit sister, and your daughter is your spirit sister. And God, you know, Elohim is our spiritual father who, who had sex with his spiritual daughter, um, Mary. You know, it um, it gets weird fast. <laughs> yeah. It does. Definitely does. One of the things, though, as you're as you're talking, that I was just thinking, kind of this, you were talking about the idea of, uh, you know, people not liking the idea of God being angry or wrathful, or even when you were saying that a man 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 is slave to sin, unregenerate man slave to sin, uh, and they kind of have this Disneyland view of God. That is predominant within the Protestant. Um, view as well. It's amazing how that has crept in. If you uh, and I do it all the time. You tell the average Protestant that they are, according to Scripture, slave to sin. If they're uh, a person is unregenerate, they will fight you up and down on that. I mean, they will debate you like crazy oh, on I that. I mean, I, I mean, you catch me in a bad mood, and I'll say, well, they've got it partially right. You know, the Mormons have been on a on a big publicity campaign for the last. 20 years, you know, it used to be that they drew a line in the sand, uh, we're Mormons, we're not Christians. And now it's like, we're more, we're Christians too. Um, you know, it's this warmer, fuzzier uh, view of things. Right. But, you know, you catch me in a bad mood, and I'll say, well, they got it part right, you know. Um, a lot of evangelicals are Mormons. Wow. Because right. honestly, a lot of what institutionally used to be evangelical, their view of God is a means to an end. Right. You know, God is not the end; he's he's a means to their own glorification. 
and he's a he's a grandfather in the sky, as C.S. Lewis said, who just wants to see the young people enjoy themselves. Uh, you know, in in San Francisco, I I saw a, an, EL, uh, an evangelical Lutheran Church of America congregation, you know, mainline Lutheran, offering goddess worship. Wow. And, you know, honestly, I think I think there's a lot of stuff that's not that far removed. I mean, they're not doing what that church of the ELCA is doing, which, you know, they're literally making Asherah dolls. They painted right. their they painted their building periwinkle, <laughs> basically purple. Wow. But you know, there there you know, let me be clear, there are churches here that tremble at God's word. And right. in the Lord's sense of humor, uh one of my one of my best friends among pastors is a free will Baptist. And I've told him he's goofy on both counts. Um uh but you know, um, we 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 get along. I, I took him to this event that I knew was going to be some kind of ambush by a local former Mormon, and I told him, I said, uh, my hope is that you're good in the fight, but if all else fails, I know you're one of the only men I can outrun. <laughs> <laughs> It ended up being Inquisition 2014. Yeah, I saw that. It was very intense. That was something else. So, um, would you like me to go through a little bit of the history of Mormonism? Sure, that would be great. Kind of give people a a starting point. Let me ask you this. Is is it okay if I give the number out? What do we got? Fifty minutes? Oh. Um, do you want me to, to, to wait to give the sure. number out, or what? What Go do ahead. you prefer? Go ahead. I'm I'm fine. Okay. Yeah, so <laughs> I'm used to live TV. I can flow with the punches. A roll with okay. the punches, I have to say. Okay. All right. Uh, for those who have a question for Pastor Wallace on uh, Mormonism and Christianity, feel free to call in at seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven seven six zero five four two uh, 3907 would love to take your call. So uh, go ahead, Pastor Wallace. You're going to give us a little, uh, I guess, history. Yeah, I, I think to really understand Mormons, you have to understand the Gnostic impulse that keeps popping up all through church history. Uh, there was a wonderful book um, that the name escapes me, unfortunately. It was written by a guy out of Greenville Seminary where he was showing how some of the early church heresies keep getting revisited. And Mormonism is a great example. Basically, Mormonism is a, is a lot like the radical, you know, the, the more radical of the Anabaptist. You, you look at Jan of Leiden, uh, Thomas Mathis, and guys like this. You know, they, they were leading armies trying to establish the kingdom of God on earth, and they were killing people who refused to be rebaptized. Um, uh, they claimed that they were receiving direct revelations and things like that. And you see this impulse popping up all through church history. With America, you get Roger Williams, who is the first Baptist pastor in America, but 
then a matter of, I think, months later, basically says no church has the authority to, to, to baptize. And you see this in, you know, all kinds of direct revelation, sort of a, 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 a proto-Pentecostalism. You, you see the Montanist in the early church. You see that kind of mysticism all through history of the church. Uh, what Joseph Smith did wasn't new. You had two basic streams of, of thinking that were converging together in early America. One was this sort of uh, Quaker, direct experience of God, direct revelation. Uh, you see at the Cane Ridge Revival, people were supposedly slain in the spirit, and they were uh, running around all, on all fours, barking like hound dogs and treating the devil. You know, you've got this sort of mystical, direct revelation. doesn't matter what the Bible says. We've got the Holy Spirit um, kind of attitude. And then you've got, you've got the Campbellite movement, which is a rejection of creeds, rejection of traditions. You know, there's so many. You know, there's so many divisions in Christianity. Let's create a bunch more. And the the vast majority of the early Mormons came out of Campbell, uh, the Campbellite churches. Joseph Smith takes popular mythology about the Indians being the lost tribes of Israel, and they were cursed with dark skin for their rebellion against God, and now God was gathering because it's the end of time, um, which everybody was saying and seems to still do. When you recognize that Joseph Smith wasn't new and novel, he was basically the Benny Hinn of his day. He tapped into an existing uh, alternative to Christianity, okay. a, a schismatic, um, mystical primitivism. When you recognize that this is all going on before and he taps into it, it makes a lot more sense of things. The radical difference between Mormonism and so many other things that were going on in the 19th century is that with the death of Joseph Smith, Brigham Young brings the people to the Salt Lake Valley, and this is the anniversary of them arriving, July 24th. Uh, they're celebrating Pioneer Day today. But they come here in 1847, and from 1847 to 1869, for 22 years, you couldn't get out of this valley except on foot or on the back of a horse. And he isolates them, and the Mormons were basically doing tongue-speaking, words of prophecy, and all this stuff 75 years prior to Azusa Street. And it had a popular appeal. Before Joseph Smith died, they started trying to centralize the real spiritual authority in the prophet, and it became a whole lot easier once they got them out here. So I don't right. know if that helps fill in the gaps for people who, you know, there, there's a more basic history you can read on Wikipedia, but hopefully that, that's right. some you know, grist for the mill. Yeah, and that's, that's one of the reasons I guess we wanted to uh, to do the show uh, today was being July 
24th, uh, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's funny because, um, you know, growing up in Utah, I always, <clears throat> I always knew that was a, it was a huge, huge day. Uh, and I, I guess I had just assumed, I guess not really knowing the history that, uh, everybody <laughs> celebrated July 24th. And I was, uh, I was uh, rudely awakened when I moved to Oregon, and we did not celebrate July 24th, and uh, even more, more so when I moved up south. Uh, just uh, not a lot of Mormon population. They do have a lot of, uh, of Mormon missionaries and stuff, but not a not a huge population of Mormons. Uh, but um, let's let's. Oh, go ahead. I didn't didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. Oh no, no problem. I think it's important for folks to to understand that when the Mormons arrived here in 1847, this was not the United States. This was Mexican territory. And the intent was to create a state like Texas that they could splinter off from Mexico. They wanted to create the state of Deseret. They were leaving the, the American territory behind them. And when they arrived here, there was no private ownership of property. God owned everything through his prophet. You had to sign everything over to the church. So um, that that creates some of the intriguing history here. Also made it very hard to leave if you became disillusioned with things once you got here. You know, they were lying to people and telling them, oh, no, these, these statements about polygamy, they're not true. And people moved here and found out they were true. But they'd already signed everything over to the church. And the Transcontinental Railroad hadn't been built yet. Uh, one, Devin, one of the important things I think that's important for folks to realize because you've got uh, Glenn Beck out there, you know, getting teary-eyed and telling people the Mormons are the only church that has ever had an extermination order issued against them. Uh, the reality is that when they were in Missouri, uh, the Governor Boggs did issue an order stating that if the Mormons did not leave, they would be exterminated. What Glenn Beck fails to tell you is that the language of extermination was taken directly from Sidney Rigdon, the second in charge of the Mormon church, threatening all the non-Mormon citizens of Missouri with extermination. Ah. Um, the, The Mormons love to play the victim. The reality is if you add all the people ever killed in the name of uh, Mormonism, uh, you've you've got from from 1830 to to, to today um, a few dozen folks. The Mormons killed 120 men, women, and children September 11th, 1857. Wow! In the name of Mormonism. The Mormon massacre. And you know, they, they love to play games like, Well, there's no evidence that Brigham Young ordered it. Well, we do know that before it ever happened, Brigham Young told the Indians they could have the cattle, uh, which I don't think the wagon train would have peacefully handed over all their livestock. And what what is clear is that uh, he covered it up after it happened. And according to Wilford Woodruff, the um, 
he confirms an incident that happened afterwards. Shortly after the massacre, the, the federal government came in and they brought in troops. Uh, they were replaced by the California militia. California troops were brought in. They heard rumors about a massacre. They go and check it out, and they find all the, the bones scattered down there. They, they gather them together. They cover them in, a, in a, a mound of rocks, and they put a cross on the top, and they write across the, the cross, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. And according to others who were there, they claimed that Brigham Young gave the sign of the square, and they threw a rope around the cross, yanked it down, and scattered the rocks and the bones. According to Wilford Woodruff, who's unimpeachable because he later becomes LDS prophet in his own journal, Brigham Young made the statement, it should read, Vengeance is mine, and I have taken me a little. Wow. <laughs> wow. Uh, people people don't uh, Mormons were an end times cult they were getting ready for the end of the world and they were killing people that tried to leave here they they, they, they slaughtered and you know on the one hand Mormonism has, has fundamentally changed because they you know they're they're not looking for the imminent return of Jesus you know and destruction of all their enemies like they were in the 19th century you know they're instead of gathering everyone to Zion for the end of the world you know here to Utah they're um they're setting up churches all over the world you know they've sort of gone from a doomsday pre-mill cult to now almost post-mill <laughs> in some ways and yet you pick at the veneer just a little bit, and it's almost like Joseph Smith died yesterday. Wow. Let me let me let me ask you this, because uh, maybe this is this may be some of the questions that that some have, <clears throat> and I think I alluded to it a little earlier. Maybe you can you can walk us through this. So. The, the the person goes to work and he meets a Mormon and the Mormon says, uh, you know, hey, I believe Jesus is God. I believe that the Bible is the Word of God, and I believe uh, believe everything you do. Uh, in fact, I don't, I don't know if you've seen this video. Uh, do you know who Brett Kunkel is from Stand to Reason? The Greg Kunkel and those guys. I'm not. I, I haven't seen it. Okay, I, I'll I'll send you this video. He goes and. Um, to to a Mormon church and or to a Christian church, what he does is he he takes a group of um, students uh, at a youth group. They go through an intensive training, and every year they do two missions trips. One they go to Berkeley, California, and they uh, they just they go head to head with the atheists. And secondly, they go to a trip to uh, to Utah on a on a missionary there, mm-hmm. or on a on a missionary journey there, and. Um, uh, they they deal with the Mormons, and so this this uh, probably this happened a couple weeks ago. Brett Kunkel uh, talked to the pastor. They worked it out. They're going to have Kunkel come into this. It's probably a large, looks like a Southern Baptist style church, and uh, the pastor says uh, this is Elder Kunkel, and he's here for an hour. 
Uh, it, was, it wasn't on a Sunday or anything. It was like on a uh, night during the week. We're going to give him an hour to kind of talk about Mormonism and, and just take your questions. And so he sat there for an hour taking their questions, and it was, it was, it was horrifying. It was like being able to see kind of a, having a window into the world of evangelicalism, the state of it, and just seeing the, the, the basic doctrines of things like the, the, the Trinity, justification, just basics, just basics. Mm-hmm. These people had no idea how to answer, and they would affirm things like, like Kunkel would say, um, uh, it's illogical, it goes against the law of, law of non-contradiction to say you can have three beings and one being, which is true, uh, and they would affirm that, well, with God, anything is possible. So he spent 45 minutes just tying the, this audience of adults and, and young adults into, into knots. So mm-hmm. help us a little bit, I guess, theologically. How do we respond to the Mormon that says, hey, I believe you know, Jesus is God, I believe uh, the Bible? What do we say? Why, why aren't they our brothers and sisters? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the explanation first that I would give a Mormon directly. Okay. You know, I, I tell I tell Mormons if I said if I if I told you that I believe that Joseph Smith was a prophet of God, would that make you happy? And they said yes. And I and I said, and I told you that Joseph Smith was born in Vermont. His family moved to New York, married uh, his wife's name Emma. Um, you'd be cool with all that, right? And they're like yes. But then I go on to tell you that. The Joseph Smith I'm talking about is a black man currently living in Kearns, Utah. He wasn't killed in 1844 in the Carthage jail. He's. Uh, are wow. we still talking about the same Joseph Smith? Right. No. Brilliant. Uh, the Jesus. The Jesus of Mormonism. Is. Our elder spirit brother, who they're un, Mormons, they used to actually try to define their theology, and they, that was causing them too many problems, and so they don't do that anymore. You know, it's basically like trying to nail Jello to a tree. But the um, the Jesus. The Jesus of the Bible, we need to be clear. You know, let, let me let me change the familiar phrasing a little bit here. Um, I want to be very careful how I do this, but you know, the biblical view is before the beginning, Jesus was God. There was nothing. You know, before before the beginning, you know, before the beginning, there was nothing. There was no, um, there were no heavens, there were no earth, but there was Jesus. There was the Father. There was the Holy Spirit. There, there was God. And they create this universe that, in which they are both imminent, but which they transcend. In Mormonism, there is no beginning. There is only the beginning of one particular part of reality when existing materials are for are reformed into the current situation 
the Jesus who was worshipped by angels and is presented as the creator of the universe, he's demoted to the spirit brother of Lucifer. And he basically took pre-existing materials and uh, remodeled a corner of creation. Or a corner, well, there is no creation. There's just eternal exist, you know, the eternal universe. And the Joseph Smith translation of John 1-1 gives you an idea of um, the problems they have with who their Jesus really is. Joseph Smith claimed to to restore the real uh, word of God. Mormons have this as a footnote in their Bibles. You know, they, they use the King James, but they'll have footnotes to show where the Joseph Smith translation supposedly clarifies things. You know, King James Version, I don't have it in front of me, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Um, John 1, I, I can do it better in Greek than I can do in English, but the Joseph Smith translation, in the beginning was the gospel preached through the Son, and the gospel was the Word, and the Word was with the Son, and the Son was with God, and the Son was of God. When they say they believe that Jesus is God, you need to understand that they're talking about Superman, like I said earlier. The if you if you watch something like the Privileged Planet, where you know they start with the Earth and they move out, and the and the Earth becomes a speck in the solar system. And then they move out, and the, and the solar system becomes a speck in the galaxy. And then the galaxy becomes a speck in the overall ob- observable universe. Um, you know, there's roughly 100 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy, and there's somewhere between 10 billion and 100 billion galaxies that are currently observable uh, with current technology. Our Jesus doesn't fit in that. He condescends to become a man. Hmm? Right. He condescends to become a man uh, born in, in, you know, in a manger, nailed to a cross. Um, Right. But, you know, Mormons, they play these games. Uh, They see no difference between God becoming a man and man becoming a god. That's right. I remember your I remember your debate with uh, I think it was with was it with Martin Canner. He kept he kept trying to to go that route. Yeah, yeah. I um, I, I loved his defense that uh, we were talking about our Mormons Christians, and he said, "Well, we're not traditional Christians, but that doesn't mean we're not legitimate Christians." That's like I, I seem to remember this this kind of same argumentation being made on marriage. And we have to test mm-hmm. marriage and Christians by the Word of God. Right. And, you know, traditional marriage is as ordained by God. Amen. That's but, right. But the the Jesus, I mean, number one, they say Jesus is God. Whoopee. Their God is pitiful. Mm. Their God isn't, you know, there, there's a finite distance between us and a flea in terms of state of being, 
to some right. extent. We, we're created unique in that we're created in the image of God, uh, which for Mormons means that we have a nose and we have two arms and two legs. You know, um, <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, they they can't quite understand how it is the Holy Spirit is conforming us to the image of Christ uh, when we're supposedly already in that image, but um, you know they'll dance around that. But the their God is a flea. I mean, it's not even a flea, right? And and their Jesus, uh, he's he's. I mean, they, they th- you need to understand, Mormonism is not a religion of any book. It's not a religion of the Book of Mormon. It's not a religion of the Bible or the Pearl Great Prize or Doctrine and Covenants. Wow. All, all of those can be thrown under the bus if it is expedient for the current prophet. Wow. Ah, that's right. In, in, in X... 17, you have the Bereans commended that they search the scriptures to know what's true. There was a standard by which Paul could be judged. There is no standard by which uh, the Pope and Roman Catholicism or the prophet in Mormonism can be judged because they're not religions of the book, they're religions of the men, of, of men. And whatever the prophet says is what's right. So they're throwing... Uh, things that prophets have said in the past that were stated as prophecy, as direct revelation from God, they're saying, ah, uh, no, those are misunderstood. And you, you, but you need to understand, according to traditional Mormonism, Jesus was fathered by, um, I mean, according to Brigham Young, he was fathered by Adam, who was God. You know, they, they, they get uncomfortable when you start pointing that out to them. But right. Adam Adam is God, Adam is God according to Brigham Young. But even when they kind of disown that part, basically this exalted man Elohim comes and has sex with Mary, his daughter. Um there there's it's not that she's overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, it's not uh, anything miraculous it is he has sex with her she she conceives jesus jesus is a polygamist wow uh, uh i mean this is not dan dan brown didn't invent this stuff of course neither did the mormons but uh it, it's gnosticism you know yeah and that's you get blasphemous to it to it to an orthodox christian the idea of jesus being a polygamist should be blasphemy. I mean, absolute blasphemy. I mean, honestly, when you start defining terms, it is no less blasphemous uh, to pull out a, a white lab rat and say, you know, I believe in God. Here, let me show you. Isn't he cute? <laughs> right. That's 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 true. Right. The when when I show Mormons the God of the Bible, you know, and in focus on His holiness, His judgments, I've literally had a number of Mormons point at the Bible and say, "That's not my God," and I say, "That's your problem. Your God's a fiction." Yeah. 
Wow. Let me let me ask you this, as far as because um, they're saying that the that the universe is eternal, and I've used this route before uh, on Mormons. I'd be interested in your your thoughts. I uh, do a lot of philosophical apologetics. So when I'm dealing with atheists, for example, I'll go to like the Kalam cosmological argument. Uh, of course, uh, everything that has a beginning is a cause. Universe has a beginning, therefore the universe is a cause. Couldn't you use that to undermine the Mormon teachings that the universe is because they they have to hold to an eternal universe in order for that to be true, right? Uh, there are some Mormons that philosophical arguments can be used on. Uh, one of the debates we sponsored years ago was with a philosophy professor at Utah State. He ended up leaving Mormonism afterwards. Unfortunately, became well, a Catholic. Uh, but uh, so, you know, I, I mean, I think he <laughs> he found something more philosophically satisfying, but not anything more biblical. And the the thing about it is most Mormons are not philosophical, and there is there is they are conditioned to divorce their faith from scripture and from reason. Right. Okay. I, if you have time, I'll, I'll share something with you. I think that'll give you some insight. I'm not sure how we're yeah, on time yeah. here. We have um, uh, 22 minutes left. Yep. Okay. I'll, this will give you an insight both into Mormonism in its current form, because it does keep changing. You know, polygamy's gone away. Blacks being banned from the priesthood went away. Uh, uh, a number of things have gone away, but fundamentally it hasn't changed. The, the we had a one of our elders had put together a discussion group where we were able to go into the Institute of Religion up at the University of Utah. A very large building there, and we were able to meet with students and explain to them from from the Bible how we differed in terms of who is God, who is man, what is sin, who is Jesus Christ, what is salvation. Okay. And we had uh, a local evangelical leader come traipsing in with a friend of his who was. Um, BYU professor, and he hears what's going on. He says, uh, oh, well, he and I have the same soteriology and the same doctrine of salvation. Uh, we had a Christian Reformed Church pastor who came in, and there was discussion on the uh, so on the sovereignty of God. And he said, personally, I find the canons of Dort repugnant. But we persevered, we kept on, and we had reached out to the the evangelical campus ministries. They didn't want to come. But then the but then the new uh, they got a new director at the institute and he reached out to them and they came. And they made very clear they didn't want to discuss theology anymore. They wanted to worship with the Mormons because they were convinced that the Mormons were worshiping, you know, that they would be won over by their lively, heartfelt worship 
Wow. And we tried to tell them this is insane. Yes. They're they're idolaters. They're not worshiping the same Jesus, the same God, you know, anything here. Yeah. And so, but totally they went forward. They, they ignored us entirely. And what we what our elder had started, we quickly got pushed out of basically. But they go, we go just to see what's going to happen. And so they decide they're going to have this time of sharing. And they have this evangelical student who gets up and, you know, he, he's kind of the surfer dude kind. He gets up, you know, well, I, I, I went to church when I was a kid and I started drifting out when I was a teenager and I played with drugs and slept around and, you know, I got to college and I was just kind of a, into the party scene. But, you know, then somebody invited me to crew and, uh, you know, I... I I realized just how great Jesus is, and you know now I'm I'm kind of sort of living for Him, and um, you know things are really cool. And then they turn to this you know very fresh-faced Mormon girl, and she's going to share what Jesus means to her. And ten seconds in, she's in total tears, just gushing about how she loves Jesus. And the evangelicals are looking at each other like. How do we top that? <laughs> oh, I mean, when you, when you understand Mormons were Pentecostals before the Pentecostals were, <laughs> uh, you know, the it, it's when when people hear the word Jesus, they hear the word God, they hear the word faith, they hear the word grace. And they see, you know, misty-eyed emotion from a Glenn Beck or whoever. They're like, "What do we do now?" Um, Defining your term. There, there is, there is. It is a black and white difference between the Jesus, who is our our elder spirit brother, who competed with Satan on who would redeem the world, and Satan's portrayed as a Calvinist. He wanted to. Uh, take away people's free agency, <laughs> but Jesus loved everyone's free agency. Right. And he, you know, um, he wanted to get, anyway. Yeah, if if uh, if you don't mind, we need to take a break real quick. Just a, a quick uh, two three minute break. Give people a chance to be able to get up, get a drink. Uh, again, the phone number is seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven. Seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven. We will be back in three minutes. This is John MacArthur inviting you to join me for Portraits of Grace. Men, have you ever been at work and realized you forgot to shave? Well, that's a good illustration of what it means to hear God's word and forget to respond. James said, "If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looked at his natural face in a mirror." This is not some casual glance either, but a careful, observant stare. Yet even a long, hard look is worthless if you walk away and forget what you saw. If you fail to respond because the image reflected in the mirror will soon fade when you don't make the corrections. Perhaps you've been putting off something that you know God's Word is instructing you to do. If so, don't delay. 
This is John MacArthur trusting that you'll look into the Word of God and become a true portrait of grace. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. One minute apologist. If you had one minute Apologia. to be able to unpack for the audience, we interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. My question to you is, are Mormons Christians? Well, if a Christian is somebody who believes certain basic doctrines, uh, actually there are 14 of them. They're found in the Apostles' uh, Creed. They're found in the Bible as the basis uh, for the gospel. You have to believe in one God, that there's three persons in one God. You have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus was a human. Man's a sinner. Jesus died for our uh, sins. You have to be justified by faith. If you line up those essential doctrines, there are about 14 of them, you'll see that Mormons deny most of them. So the question is, can you be a Christian and deny most of the fundamental Christian doctrines? And the answer is no. Uh, Could you be a Buddhist and deny most of the fundamental Buddhist doctrines? Could you be a Muslim and deny uh, that uh, God is Allah and Muhammad was his prophet and that the Quran is the word of God? Obviously not. Uh, You can claim to be, but you aren't really because it doesn't correspond uh, to the fact. So Mormons are not uh, Christians. Jehovah's Witnesses are not Christians because they all deny crucial, fundamental Christian doctrines, which makes them not Christian. People say, well, but they believe in God. Yeah, but which God? Uh, It's a finite God. It's a progression of God. It's a form of polytheism. They believe in Jesus. Yeah, but what Jesus? Uh, is Jesus the brother of Lucifer? That's what Mormons believe. Right. Uh, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is Michael the Archangel. Well, can he be saved by believing in an angel? Uh, Michael the Archangel? Obviously not. So they claim to be Christian, but they don't prove to be Christian. Hi, this is Ted Wright, Executive Director of CrossExamine.org, and I want to invite you to come out this summer, August the 8th to the 10th, to Charlotte, North Carolina, to our Cross-Examined Instructors Academy. This year is going to be fantastic. We're going to have Jay Warner Wallace, Greg Kokel, our own Dr. Frank Turek, and many others. If you want to learn more about this, you can go to www.CrossExamine.org and click on CIA to learn more about it and also to apply. All right, folks, we are back, and I'm sitting here with Pastor Jason Wallace, and we are taking a look at Mormonism under the microscope. Uh, just a quick note on that last commercial, uh, CIA, um, that was actually last year's promo, so the, the, the information's the same, uh, but the date is, I believe, the 14th through the 16th, and uh, I'll be actually, I'll be there helping them out and be on hand. It's a, it's a great opportunity for those who uh, are wanting to, uh, it's required you have a little bit of a basic knowledge of uh, apologetics. But for those who are wanting to come and, and uh, learn from some of the best apologists uh, around today, uh, as well as uh, they give you a lot of your, your PowerPoints and stuff, it's based on the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, by Dr. Geisler and Turek. Uh, Geisler is the guy you heard on there before, uh, Dismantling Mormonism. And uh, it's really a kind of a 12-step process. Uh, that demonstrates uh, that Christianity is true. So uh, check out that book. Uh, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Um, if that's be something you're, you're interested in, learning how to uh, defend uh, 
the existence of God, reliability of the Bible, historical arguments for the resurrection. Um, think about coming out to uh, to CIA. Uh, it's a little pricey. I think it's uh, four or five hundred bucks to to do that. But uh, you know, it's three days with with the best apologists around. So uh, you can contact crossexamine.org for more on that. So, Pastor Wallace, uh, you there? Yep, I'm here. All right. Uh, so one of the things that, one of the big differences, of course, is uh, is not only with the doctrine of God as to where uh, Christians believe in the triune God of the Bible, co-eternal, co-equal, uh, kind of maybe, maybe talk a little bit about some of the differences um, between soteriology, salvation. We know there's a, there's some big differences, as you were saying, with the with the Mormon view of God. What about the the Mormon view of salvation uh, compared to the Protestant view? Well, once again, it's a little bit hard to pin them down. Uh, historically, you know, twenty five thirty years ago, you could pin them down a whole lot easier. You had a, there was a very popular book called Mormon Doctrine that said that grace and faith were rewards for works. You know, it was very clear it was a works-based religion. You had a book by Spencer Kimball, who was a prophet, uh, called The Miracle of Forgiveness, that said that forgiveness only happened when you fully abandoned your sins. Uh, the Joseph Smith translation of Romans 4, verse 5 says, but to him that seeketh not to be justified by the law of works, but believeth on him who justifieth not the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Um, the, the old southern comedian um, Ted Garner says, you know, that word not, it, uh, backwards it spells ton, ain't that heavy. Uh, kind of turns the whole meaning upside down. Does God justify the ungodly according to Traditional Mormonism, no, he doesn't. Now it's hard to get a straight answer out of them. It's all warm and fuzzy and just, you know, there's there's lots of social stuff. Uh, you can go to dances and all like that. But, but when it really boils down to it, you have to go through the temple. In order to, to reach celestial exaltation, you have to be determined to be temple worthy. You have to You have to go through for the... Uh, endowments you have to go through for uh, your marriage. You you have to be married in the temple in order to to achieve godhood. And the way that you do that is you demonstrate that you have tithed. Uh, that you you know you have and they they check you out. I mean you have to tithe. You have to keep the word of wisdom. You know which is this uh, list of dietary rules. And it, it's it's harder to pin down. You know, they'll talk about grace, but the Book of Mormon says, Second uh, Nephi twenty um, twenty five twenty three, I think it is, that uh, we're saved by grace after all we can do. And Moroni ten thirty two. I'm pulling this off the top of my head. I, I think it is. Uh, it says that basically if you deny yourself of all ungodliness and love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then is his grace sufficient for you. So it's it's a synergism. It's 
you meriting the merit of Christ. God grading on a curve. And if people take that seriously, it's crushing. Uh, the reality right. is most of them don't take it very seriously. And the Mormon the Mormon church is morphing a lot. Uh, the Mormon church was instrumental in the compromise with the Boy Scouts. I honestly see the Mormon hierarchy taking them in the same direction as the mainline Protestant churches as far as selling out to any kind of uh, popular pressure. You know, they, they, they went against what they said was a revelation of God to admit blacks into the priesthood in 1978. Well, 30, I think it's 37% of all the Boy Scout troops in America are sponsored by LDS churches. So the Boy Scouts weren't going to do anything without the, without the LDS church's consent, and they basically backed up. And wow. They were so they were so stung by the the backlash on Proposition Eight, which they had been prominent in, that now they have given their blessing to an ordinance that's been making its way through the municipalities and is being considered for the whole state that forbids anyone from discriminating in housing or employment based on sexual orientation or sexual identity. You know, so if the the boy you hire to run your front desk uh, at your business, you know, your cashier shows up in drag one day, you can't do anything about it. And the Mormon church says that's the way it's supposed to be. Um, so... It's in terms of salvation. It, it's become looser. They they don't draw the hard lines, but the more but the temple's still there. Right. They until, would, they, they, until, they would. until they do away oh, yeah. with the temples, the Phariseeism will never be addressed. A lot of naive folks look at, you know, some accommodations here and there, and they're like, oh, the Mormons are changing. They're going to be like the Worldwide Church of God. You know, never mind the fact it was just the, the leadership and a handful of the followers that that actually came out of the Worldwide Church of God into evangelicalism. You know, a whole lot of them didn't. You know, they created splinter groups. But there's – but Mormonism um, – they're trying to respond to criticism and – the way they're doing it is feelings, big-time feelings. Right. And a lot of evangelicals don't know how to respond to feelings. Well, with with evangelicals, uh, kind of the uh, the um, the material cause of the Reformation, justification by faith alone, sola fide. Um, how do Mormons respond to? To that, do they just kind of look at it as though it's somehow some kind of a cheap grace type of a That's thing? That's the only that... way they see it. Yeah, okay. honestly, and, and with some merit, because a lot of the folks who have been countering them are che- extremely cheap grace, but yeah. they they bring people into their seminaries to articulate cheap grace. I mean, they they use their own people generally, but the the Mormons they know that they're supposed to be you know 
uh, they'll hear a cheap grace person quote Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, never 10. Uh, but, you know, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And they say, well, James 2 contradicts that. And that just, you know, not only does it show that there's supposed to be works, but also it shows us the Bible can't be trusted. Right. And right. You know, the cheap grace people just stand there like deer in the headlights. And not, not by works, not by works, not by works. And it's like, uh, excuse me, read the next verse. Yeah, out, out here where I'm at, it's it's predominant. Uh, like the uh, Zane Hodge, Charles Ryrie. Um, I mean, oh, I yeah, know yeah, yeah. Not the same, but I mean, it's that is major out here. They have whole church movements that are like the like, what is it, Evangelical Free? Uh, I think that's that's the association, and it's man, it is huge out here. I guess mainly with Dallas Theological. Seminary and dispensationalism. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's really bad out here on that, on that front. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, I, one of the things I dealt with a couple months back was false prophecies, and the Mormon apologists are using dispensational arguments against the Bible. You know, they, it's clear that Joseph Smith said that a temple would be built in Independence, Missouri, in uh, the generation of those living in, in uh, I want to say 1836. I'm trying to remember the year. But I think it was right, 1836. And subsequent prophets and apostles understood that very, very literally. Even, I think, 98 years roughly afterwards, you had one of their apostles say, there are still people who are alive today that, were alive when he said that. So the generation hasn't passed away. But now they all have, and so what they do is, you know, they turn to the dispensationalist, ignoring the fact that the whole context of the Olivet Discourse, not one stone being left on another, was fulfilled 40 years after Jesus said that. And they say, well, a generation can be thousands of years. I mean, that's what the, that's what these Christians say. Um it's like, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, we uh, we are actually here. We are we're coming to a to an end of this show. Unfortunately, we've got uh, like a minute left. Uh, but uh, maybe what are uh, what what are some good resources for those who are wanting to uh, dive into Mormonism? I. I have recommended uh, in the past uh, Ron Rhodes' book, Reasoning from the Scriptures uh, with Mormons. I think that's a that's a good book. Um, do, you, do you have any others that you would suggest? Yeah, I mean, I Is the Mormon My Brother is probably the best one I can think of offhand in terms of understanding the problems of Mormonism from from a biblical perspective. Uh, addressing the the folks who are trying to, to bring Mormons into you know under the umbrella, so to speak. There, if you want to get into the particulars of Mormonism, uh, the the Tanners UTLM.org, uh, Utah Lighthouse Ministries, uh, Mormons have produced reams of materials, uh, and and did a wonderful have, have done a wonderful job. Uh, Gerald's going to be with the Lord, uh, but Sandra Sandra does an excellent job. Uh, they can go to, if you want to see interaction, you can go on YouTube. There are some, 
James is putting some of the debates on, I think, that we sponsored. Uh, the debates I did are up on there. Uh, we've got some others as well. If you just uh, type in Mormon debate and maybe Jason Wallace or something like that, it should pop up. Okay. And then Wonderful. also we've yeah, got we interviews. Yeah, we will we will put a link up to your website as well, and uh, if you like to the church, and uh, would encourage people uh, to to get out there. If you're in in Salt Lake uh, City or Utah or around that area, um, you know, hard to find a good Bible teaching church these days, folks. It's just the bottom line. You know, I recently uh, we'd left the church uh, to dissolve, and I ended up having to try and find another church. And to try and find a church that was committed to expository preaching is, uh, it's hard. It's just, it's, it's, it's hard. Uh, and especially if you're in a place where you don't have a lot of good, um, you know, reformed churches, and I don't, I don't think Utah has very many of those, uh, it can be hard. It can be a challenge. So, you know, praise God that uh, Pastor Wallace is out there. And I uh, would recommend people check out his church. And I uh, would love to have you back on the show again in the future, Pastor Wallace. And like I said, I know we're going down there to visit in uh, December for around Christmas. We'd love to be able to sit down and, and have dinner with you and let me pick your brain. Well, it would be my privilege. And I just ask your, your listeners, please pray for us. This is a, we, we, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Uh, this is a spiritual battle, but... The Lord's Word and His Spirit can turn this valley of dry bones into a living army. Amen. Amen. Well, appreciate you coming on, and we will look forward to uh, hopefully having you on again in the future. Thank you so much. Lord bless. God bless. All right, folks, and next week we will have Rob Bowman, and we will be looking at uh, one of the new uh, books by Bart Ehrman. So join us next week. Thanks. God bless. Cause death couldn't hold them The spotlight is on Today's icons In a thousand years Nobody will care That light's gone But at that time Christ will still shine bright He's not in the limelight He is the limelight Criminal minded You've been blinded Looking for the body of Jesus You won't find it We never lack spirit Letting you catch it Cause it's too much empty Like most secular rap lyrics Plato is dead Socrates